Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We start things off on this Thursday morning with Dennis Gartman, editor and publisher of the Gartman Letter on our phone line. And we're reaching him by phone as he prepares to make his way down to Carter-Finley Stadium this weekend for Syracuse, NC State, the Wolfpack 3-1 and one, uh, so far uh, this season. Dennis, great to have you with us uh, this morning. And let's start with the tax plan. We were talking about a few uh, weeks back when you were on the show back then. It seemed like we weren't going to get a whole lot. What did you make of what we got, the level of detail, and what this means for, for the market and for the U.S. economy? Well, first of all... It, it's a good plan. Let, let's let's be blunt. Uh, the the fact that we've gone to a simpler, a, a much simpler type of, of tax structure, I think, is reasonable and wise. We are a long way from getting it passed. However, there will be months before this can be put through. Months before the legislation comes from the House. Months before it's passed by the Senate. Months before it is pa- written by or, or signed off by the president. But it's a good step forward. Hopefully it will be pushed through. Hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll see it come to fruition. It will be good for the economy. I stand in favor of it. Hot off the presses this morning, the latest Gartman letter. You spent a lot of time today, Dennis, focusing on Japan. We learned a couple of days ago from the prime minister he's going to call a snap election in that country, uh, partly because of the, the threats from North Korea, partly because he's planning to uh, change the tax code there uh, in Japan. So tax, tax changes all around, it seems like, uh, these days. Why is this so important? Why are you looking at Japan in particular today? Well, first of all, anytime you get a, a regime change, and we're not going to get a regime change in Japan at this point, Mr. Abe has made the decision to call a snap election, not because he is terribly popular. In fact, he's not very popular at all. But the fact is that his popularity has risen marginally from its worst levels in several years, and he has no one to run against. There is nobody on, from the uh, Democratic uh, Party of Japan of any consequence that can stand in his stead. So he's going to win the election. Uh, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, at this point, we'll probably see the LDP pick up five, maybe ten more seats in the Diet than it had previously. It will have a larger majority than it has had. And if I were Mr. Abe, I would have done exactly the same thing. He's getting votes this time because he has done at least a reasonable job of steadying the economy and steadying the political environs, given the circumstances prevailing in the, in the Korean Peninsula. And he's probably done the right thing. I would have done the same thing if I were Mr. Abe. Dennis, what everybody wants to know from you, among uh, a number of things, is not whether you're long December corn. I mean, <laughs> you always have to be long something in the Midwest. But the state of gold... Just to start, why is gold fluctuating in the way it is? It's not around an inflation dynamic, is it? No, it's it's ceased being an inflation dynamic. In fact, what is interesting is uh, that gold and and the bond market seem to be moving in tandem. Under normal circumstances, over long periods of time, uh, and, and the history that I've been involved in the markets, gold moves one direction and bonds move the other. But for the past year and a half, Gold and bonds have moved in tandem one with the other, which is actually atypical. So gold has clear, clearly ceased being a, a measure of inflation. It has become solely a, another safe haven currency, yeah. nothing more than that. And I've always thought that that's what gold should be to begin with anyway. And David Gurra now for the important philosophical question. Is December corn a safe haven crop? <laughs> 
December corn is the new crop. It's the it's the first of the uh, of the corn that can be delivered uh, for for that which is being grown right now. Some corn can be delivered in September, but it's usually it, it's very a very small amount of of uh, uh, of corn that gets uh, mature at this point. So it is the new crop. It's the most important future of the of the corn market, and it's the one everybody pays attention to. Watch December corn. How about watch margin usage? You talk about the global bull market yeah. we're seeing right now. Why is that metric? Why is that indicator so important to you at this point? A lot of people using a lot of margin, and historically, when you get to these levels of margin usage, you get uh, stock markets that show a little some signs of weakness. Now, uh, margin usage has been extended and and egregious for the past five or six months to begin with. It has gone to a new high well above previous levels. It would have been, it looked overextended and therefore bearish of the, of the stock market some while ago. But you don't turn bearish of stocks until the margin usage itself turns lower. The problem is margin usage is, is only um, made public with a one-month delay. And in our business, one month can be a, a veritable lifetime. But if but we have margin usage by the public at extremely extended levels, eventually that must be unwound. The really important, the, the operative word here is eventually. It'll happen when it happens. Well, is, is it at 07 levels? I mean, is it the silliness rather of 2006? Can you, can you even far, do a relative analysis of it? It's even higher than that. It's gone to even newer highs than that which was used in 07. It's even higher than that which was used in, in at the turn of the uh, of the century. It is extremely overextended, but it's going to get more overextended. Okay, so when do you stops. when do you sell? Well, I mean, you don't sell based on North Carolina State football wins. <laughs> when do you sell? But we're doing better this year. Be nice. Be kind. We beat, we, we beat Florida State last week. Come on now. It's true. I and I actually I did follow that game a little bit. I hate to <laughs> say it, about just, it. Just for fact, yeah. Uh, well, how do you know, Dennis, when to get out? I mean, I mean, that's the money question. You're a pinata on this across all yeah. of global Wall Street because you've got the courage uh, to state your track record and your your yeah. uh, trades right now. How do you know when to get out if margin balances are nuts? The only thing I can say in 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 forty some years of being involved in markets is this: it is a bull market. It has been a bull market. It shall continue to be a bull market until several things happen. One. You have to break up trend lines that, that can be drawn with, re, with rather wide pencils. Two, you have to fail below the previous highs. That is, the market must make a new high, break, not go to a new high. That has to happen. You have to see that the volume comes in on the downside. That's not happening yet. You have to finally see that the market does not respond to bullish news bullishly. When all four of those things occur, it will probably have been a bear. A bear market will have started. You will not be able to know that until you're at least five or six or seven percent below the previous highs. Even if then, if once a bull market get, or a bear market begins, prices will go down twenty-five, thirty, forty percent. But right now, it is a it is a bull market. It has been a bull market. It is an overextended bull market. It'll continue until it stops. That's all I've learned in forty-five years of doing this. What I've learned here is you always ask the hard question when you're going up against a hard break and you've got, got to go to commercial. So with just a, a few <laughs> seconds left here, Dennis, I noticed Bitcoin is not mentioned in the latest uh, newsletter. What have you made about the rhetoric uh, surrounding Bitcoin since the comments by Jamie Dimon a few weeks back? Uh, we, we've certainly seen uh, a lot of attention on the cryptocurrencies here over these last few weeks. I think that the blockchain is one of the most important 
technical, computer-driven circumstances or events that we will have seen in our lifetime. It will end up becoming far more important. But Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the other 1,000 or so uh, cryptocurrencies are ridiculously priced. There is no reason for them whatsoever. It is a punter's so, paradise. Leave it to them. Punter's paradise. Are we going to see the Gartman initial coin offering? <laughs> <laughs> the ICO, the Gartman ICO. I like that. <laughs> no, you 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 won't. Uh, and if you did, it would probably go blow right up in my face yeah. to begin with. Dennis Gartman, too short. Thank too you so short, much sure. for being with us uh, this morning. Uh, wisdom, and again, we protect the copyright of all of our guests. No. We're not going to send out the acclaimed Gartman letter. It's written, David, like he gets up at some, it's like more oh, insane than we are. Yeah, I don't think he sleeps at all. He yeah, sleeps on the golf course. He's still Mrs. Gartman. He's playing golf. He's, <laughs> you know, out at the fourth hole under some hemlock somewhere, snoozing away, <laughs> getting ready for the early morning Gartman letter. Dennis Gartman, send your love notes to David Gurr. I'll take the hate mail on Gartman. It's always enjoyable. David Guerra, Tom Keen here in New York. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. Yesterday, the Big Six, as they're called, released a framework for tax reform. We've been going through that uh, since we got that report yesterday. The gentleman from the 4th Congressional District in Ohio joins us now. That's Congressman Jim Jordan, the former chairman of the House Freedom Caucus. He's on our phone lines. Congressman Jordan, great to have you with us here once again. I want to know, as soon as you got this framework yesterday, I gather Republicans gathered just outside of D.C. and Virginia to to talk about the the framework. What was uh, front of mind for you? What's the one question you've got? For the big six, for Chairman Brady and the lot who, who put this thing together, what are you still curious about, wondering about what needs to be answered? Uh, what, what, you know, what income levels the personal rates will be at. But overall, we, uh, you know, we like the framework. You know, we did a piece last uh, last week in the, in the journal, uh, Congressman Meadows and I, where we where we talked about, look, is, is the tax plan going to cut taxes? Is it going to simplify the code? Is it going to be conducive to producing economic growth? We think the answers to those three questions are yes. Uh, specifically when we when we look at what some of the details we were given and we asked for last week in our piece, which is what's the corporate rate, what's the small business rate, what's the repatriation rate, and you know how many rates and what are they going to be on the personal side. So we're, we're beginning to get that information. We think it's a good plan, a good framework to start with, and so we're supporting um, – we're supporting the budget and moving forward. Help Tom and me understand where we are uh, in this process. We talked to Senator Pat Toomey yesterday, and it sounded from yeah. listening to him that we're at the beginning of this. There's still a lot of debate right. to be had among committees, among members of the House and members of the Senate uh, as well. At the same time, we hear from the president this is going to be done by the end of the calendar year. Square that optimism with just the realities of legislating, uh, what has to be done in committees, and, and the likelihood, as you see it, that we will get something here over these next few months. Uh, that is my goal. Uh, frankly, uh, I think the American people are tired of waiting for the things that they, you know, we told them we were going to do when they elected us that last November. Uh, the health care hasn't worked out like we had planned, which is uh, very unfortunate. But um, I think it needs to get done by the end of the year, just like the president has talked about. So let's get it through the House. Step one is to pass a budget. Um, now that we have this framework on the on the tax reform, House Freedom right. position, we're willing to go for a budget. Jim so Jordan. 
you're as far from Gucci Golf on Fifth Avenue in New York as anybody I know. Your fourth <laughs> district is the little Switzerland of America. Your district is what everybody wants. You got a yogurt factory, you got a Ford factory, you're making Heinz ketchup and all the rest of it. What tax Yeah, I know. What tax relief what tax relief does the middle class miracle of the fourth district need away from what the Titans of Wall Street want? You want to let families keep more of the money uh, in their pocket, plain and simple. And that's what doubling the standard deduction is going to do. That's what lowering the, 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 the personal rates is going to do. Uh, plus, you just went overall okay. growth, which, which helps every single American. And that's what, you know, we saw all kinds of economists yesterday talking about this is the kind of plan that's going to produce growth. Okay, but it's uh, Jim Jordan. Who helped but, put it together were, were Steve Moore, Larry Kudlow, they understand. It's yeah, I know. Okay, growth. but Larry, come on. Larry, my good friend Larry Kudlow <laughs> is a Rockefeller Republican. Are you doing this with an expanding deficit that sells to Kudlow and more, but an expanding deficit that doesn't sell in the 4th District? No, because revenue neutral, this, this Washington speak, uh, is a fancy way of saying the tax burden stays the same. We just shift around who pays what. And, and that zero-sum game scenario, who always wins is the big corporations, who always loses is middle-class families. So I am not for revenue neutral. I'm for actually just designing a tax code that does those things I described earlier. Let families keep more of their money and one that produces economic growth. That should be our focus. And then over time, we are going to get economic growth, which does, in fact, help you. You cannot deal with a $20 trillion debt. If you don't start growing at something better than what we've had the last 10 years, which has been a percent, percent and a half each year, you got to get the three and a half percent growth to have any chance to deal with the debt mm-hmm. of, that, uh, of that magnitude. Well, something sir. that's gotten a lot of attention here is this cap on pass-through entities. What are you going to say to a mom from Tiffin, Ohio, about pass-through entities and why that's something that needs Tiffin. to be capped? Well, the small business owners, they, they create most of the jobs in this country. So you don't want them paying at 39 ticks, for goodness sake. You want that rate to come down. And that's what it does under this plan. So uh, that is a good thing. Letting people, I mean, this is real simple. Letting people keep more of their money is a good thing. Letting moms and dads have more of their money to spend on their kids, their grandkids, their goals, their dreams, their small business, if they have one, is a good thing. That's what this plan does. It's the outline of this framework. We've got some specifics to work out, I understand. But so far, the outline is good. Let's move forward. Let's get it done. After all, that's what we told the voters we're going to do. Good morning on the Sandusky River, Tiffin, Ohio, this morning. Jim Jordan with us on the 4th uh, District of Ohio. It's a really interesting uh, district. It's sort of like rural Ohio, think tomatoes, and it curves up to the right. Jim Jordan is the representative of the conservative university known as Oberlin College. Uh How does that – Jim Jordan represents the students of Oberlin College? Eclectic district, to say the least. Uh, Steve Morgan will join us as well in the next hour. Oberlin's involved in the basketball scandalous. (laughs) Something like that. Always good to talk to Jim Jordan. Stay with us worldwide. This is Bloomberg. David Gurr is going to bring in our next esteemed guest. And, David, it's the theme of the day, including with the National Economic Advisor, Mr. Cohn, uh, which is everything's going to be fine. We're going to grow our way. Grow our way. 
along the tax reform path. Somebody who's been saying that for a while now is Stephen Moore, former advisor to then-candidate Donald Trump, uh, former president of Club for Growth. We talked with uh, Senator Pat Toomey yesterday, another former president of that organization, Stephen Moore, the founder of it. Uh, he's now the senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C. Joining us on our phone line, Stephen, great to speak with you. We were talking with Congressman Jim Jordan a few minutes ago, and uh, he was quibbling with the term revenue neutral. Uh, he said we shouldn't be so fixated on that at this point as we begin the discussion over what this bill is going to look like. How important is it to you and your colleagues there at the Heritage Foundation, representing the conservative wing of the Republican Party, that this bill, when it's written, uh, is in fact a deficit neutral? Uh, to me, I can only speak for myself. I'm not going to speak for Heritage, but I think what's much more, mo- the, by far the most important thing for our country right now is get the economy uh, growing faster. You know, we've been growing at less than 2% now for 10 years. I believe the capacity of the U.S. economy is to grow at 35 to 4%, so almost twice as fast. Uh, there are a lot of ways of getting there, uh, but one of them is having more competitive tax system. I think it's, it'd be hard to find anybody who thinks we have a, a globally competitive tax system. And we have the highest statutory tax rates in the world on our on our corporation. That just doesn't work anymore. We're at 40 percent. The rest of the world's at closer to 20. So it's like a 20 percent head start program for every uh, you know company we're competing with abroad. Uh, we want to bring a lot of the capital that's uh, stored abroad. We estimate there's two to three trillion dollars. We want to bring that home back to the United States and have it reinvested here. So how do you, how do you guarantee that happens, Stephen? Sorry to interrupt there, but if that capital is yep. brought back, how do you incentivize these companies to spend it on things that will, as you say, get the, the economy? Economy growing. Well, look, if, if you've got a if you've got a good vibrant economy and you're you have lower tax rates, uh, so you increase the after tax rate of return on investing. Guess what? They will invest more. And now, look, a lot of it will be invested in building more plants and investing more in equipment and machinery and workers and wages. But some of it probably will be passed right. on to shareholders and in dividends, and, and that's fine. What's wrong with that? You know, good dividends yeah. uh, to like half of Americans own stocks, so it'll be good for the economy if the companies yeah. pay out more dividends to their shareholders. Stephen, around about the 4th of July, three years ago, you wrote an important essay on Kansas, counseling yeah. patients, Kansas will work out, and a number of others, including your good friend Paul Krugman, said, uh, maybe not. Can you apply Kansas as a failure or Kansas as a success over, a success over the national tax reform debate? Well, I think it's, look, Kansas has gotten a lot of attention, no question about it. And, and uh, you know, they've had problems in Kansas, and partly because, you know, the uh, oil bust, uh, you know, Fair. Kansas is an oil bust. Come on. It also, didn't work out. It's also next. It's us. Awesome. But here's the point. I mean, I love to point to the states. The states are such a good example of why we need to do this. I mean, North Carolina just passed a, uh, three or four years ago a, mm-hmm. a gigantic tax cut, a business tax cut, and North Carolina is now the, three, the third fastest growing state in the country. And then if you look at what's happened in Tennessee, they eliminated their tax on investment. Tennessee is one of the two or three fastest okay. growing states in the country. So states are really good examples of why tax rates matter. I mean, look at the 10 states with no income tax and compare them with like California and New York and New Jersey and Connecticut. I'll go with that. In terms the of demographics, no question. Twice as, twice as many jobs. No twice question many about jobs that. No question yeah. about that. Just looking at Texas alone is a job-forming uh, miracle given the sharp demographic differences within uh, the great state of Texas. But Stephen Moore, just to get to the point, what is Stephen Moore's definition of middle class? I don't mean heritage. Yeah. I mean, what's your definition of middle class? Because it's different in Kansas than it is near the Gucci store on Fifth Avenue. 
Well, that's a great question. You know, I mean, being middle class in Manhattan, you know, you probably need a you need an income of at least you know two hundred thousand dollars or so to to be in the middle class there. I mean, whereas you're right, if if you're in a rural area, probably you know fifty, forty, fifty thousand puts you in the middle class. Uh, look, I want a rising tide that lifts all boats. I want every American to have a higher income. We want higher wages and salaries. Yeah. We do think having businesses bring back jobs to America and invest more is a good way to do it. You know, the Congressional Budget Office, which is hardly a conservative, you know, numbers crunching. Oh, you love them. Stop it. You've got a love affair. <laughs> Stephen Moore, you have a love affair with CBO. <laughs> They say 65% of the benefits of cutting business taxes will go to workers in the form of higher wages and more jobs. So, no. you know, we, we really, okay. Trump has said this is a middle-class tax cut. I hope he's right. Okay, John Tucker, the headline here is more, more reestablishes bromance with CBO. Oh, Stephen God. Moore, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> we want you to come on more during this heated debate because tax reform is going to go on for two years, contrary to what everybody says. Stephen Moore, Club for Growth. Was that okay, David? Yeah, now at the Heritage Foundation, D.C. on our phone lines. Uh, now it's time to get you know a little bit acute and mathy on a VIX at 9.93. The Dow printing negative 30 right now in the initial uh, prints. Ash Alankar is with Janice Henderson uh, out of MIT and Haas Berkeley as well. Dr. Alankar, good morning. Um, what's the nature of the dampened quiet, the volatility that we see, the lack of volatility that we see? What's the distinction you see within that? Ah, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, excellent question. A big puzzle, I would say, over the past uh, many years is this dampened volatility. And our take on this is the following. Volatility, if you think of it as an asset class, it's an asset class which is used to earn carry. People short volatility to earn carry, to earn income, uh, to earn uh, a monthly okay. or a weekly coupon. Okay, stop. we got to translate this. Not everybody <laughs> has a Ph.D. from I'm taking notes. wherever. Okay. okay. Here's what he says, folks. Volatility, I'm going to sell it to you and bring in money, a premium, and bank the money. Did I get that right? That's exactly correct. Continue. So if volatility is used as an asset to generate income, what is the alternative way to earn income? The alternative way to earn income is to hold bonds to collect an interest rate by holding U.S. Treasuries, holding corporate bonds, holding high-yield bonds. With interest rates so bloody low, mm -hmm. you then have a choice to make. Should I hold a 10-year bond, which is earning uh, or yielding today, it's earning t yielding 2.3%? Um, or can I short some volatility to earn a bit more and bear that risk? So when interest rates are low, all forms of carry strategies, whether it be shorting volatility to collect a premium, um, as you described, Tom, or holding FX uh, carry trades, mm -hmm. um, those all start getting distorted. Uh, so our firm belief is as long as interest rates stay very low, it's very difficult for volatility to rise because you have a continuous flow of investors selling volatility. But once interest rates rise, 
volatility should increase commensurately. Yeah, but that's the money question. Do you get a jump condition on the word once? I mean, yeah. everybody's telling me a smooth, stable pass, and you got a single sentence in your note. Bonds continue to represent the least attractive asset class. That's because Asher Lankar's worried about a jump condition, right? Um, I, no, I actually wouldn't say we're worried about a jump condition. Um, we think the Fed... Um, so what could cause a jump condition in yield to rise? That jump condition often isn't caused in a, in a developed country by a jump in real rates. Sure. That jump condition is caused by a jump in inflation. And we currently do not see any signs of a pending unexpected upward shock to inflation. And if that's the case, then mm-hmm. the Fed is not well, will never be forced to quickly drain liquidity from the markets. Right. Um, and if that risk is off the table, right. so is the risk of uh, pushing the economy right. or tipping the economy uh, off a cliff. Right. David, uh, let me do a jargon alert here. David, a jump condition uh-huh. is a Louisville point guard jumping up and taking a shot with a pair of Adidas <laughs> shoes on. Just, that's, what a jump, that's right. That's what a jump condition is. Ash, in the that's note right. that, that Tom was referencing there a moment ago, you, you focus a lot on sharp ratios, and Tom and I were talking a bit about the, the role of them, what we can learn from them yesterday. How do you use them? What does the sharp ratio tell you? Uh Great. So we actually don't use a traditional sharp ratio. Um, so the ter- traditional sharp ratio, um, w- which Bill Sharp was in part awarded the Nobel Prize for, uh, is a ratio of risk-adjusted returns, which aims to estimate the expected return on an asset. So say the expected return on the S&P 500, and normalizes it by the risk you're bearing by holding the S&P 500, which is the volatility. Um, we believe that that actually is an incomplete measure of attractiveness, and the better measure of attractiveness deals with uh, kind of this idea we're talking about, about jump risk, um, where your attractiveness to an asset is not the expected return, but it's the potential of that asset to realize a very large move to the upside, i.e. a right tail event. And the risk of holding an asset is not really volatility. The risk of holding an asset is the risk of loss or drawdown risk. So we normalize that and divide that by the risk of suffering a severe drawdown. And we call that a tail-based sharp ratio. And and what the market is telling us is – so we really embrace the – and respect the value of market prices and what market prices can tell you about future risk. And these market prices – mainly option prices, are telling us both good and bad news. What's the good and the bad, quickly? Okay, so what would you like to hear, the good or the bad? The good first. The good first. The good first. So the, the good news is the market is not pricing in a level of risk, which is consistent with a sharp okay. slowdown in What's the bad? Growth. The bad news is the market is pricing ever more little upside yeah. Okay, I'll go with that. My problem with all this mumbo-jumbo is the idea of you're working within a Gaussian construct, a symmetric bell curve. Aren't you working in a log-normal world like everybody else, where when we go down, we go down faster than when we go up? Um, so we are not working in a log-normal world. We're working, but what you said is exactly right. We're assuming the world is not Gaussian. The world is not log-normal. The world is potentially a fat-tailed world. Okay, so we're on the edge of Taleb. Exactly. But those fat tails 
don't only exist in the left tail, i.e. that black swan, yep. but fat tails also yep. show themselves on the right side in terms of very, very bullish and upward okay. ascending market. Are we on the right side or the left side? We're going to come back on this, folks, because four people on the Garden State Parkway just drove off the road. <laughs> What's the likelihood we're on the right side? And to be fair to Nassim uh, Nicholas Taleb, he did stay. There were two tails. But what's our likelihood of being in the Nirvana right side of that uh, golden very, swan? Very, very low right now. We do not see right tail uh, risk mm-hmm. um, or right tail potential manifesting mm-hmm. and unfolding themselves anytime soon. Yeah. David's like so. Richard Dreyfuss in the Gosh. movie Close Encounters. Spinning. Spinning. He's spinning on the wall here, <laughs> and he just wrote the he just he just took in the mud. He just wrote the symbol one divided by the square root of two pi, and you know the music's going off like Close mm. Encounters. John Tucker here to We're, we're going to come back with Asha Alankar. This was very mathy. Gur demands we do a little less mathy. I want to hear about the hot dog uh, discussion here. Yeah, we could go Western New York on everybody here right now. Ashalon Carr uh, with us. So what we got there to translate that quickly is a lot of this theory, folks, is based on the bell curve like your high school class, like the height of your high school class. And the big debate is, no, that's not true. What's the bell curve really look like? And a lot of it goes back to the great work of Nassim uh, Taleb. I'm going to put out Bloomberg Radio. You're going to see this first out on social And it's the inflation-adjusted five-year yield back to Dwight Eisenhower. It's like 60, 70 years. And, you know, it's amazing, Ash, how we've forgotten that there used to be a real yield. Do you, in your day-to-day work, do you ever think you're going to see a substantially positive inflation-adjusted yield? That is the greatest distortion that currently exists in the market, that there is no real yield anywhere except in local uh, emerging market debt. Um, We do believe real yields are artificially low because of uh, extravagant, um, and I would say successful, central bank policy, Um, but that will get normalized. Um, We do believe you will see real yields that are more consistent and anchored to real GDP. Um, Take the 10-year real yield today. The 10-year real yield today is under 50 basis points. What is that telling you? That's telling you that the market thinks real GDP will average 50 basis points per year over the next 10 years. Does that make sense? Likely not. If we do realize 50 basis points in real growth over the next 10 years, we have big problems to worry about. Um, So over time, we do believe real yields will normalize, and that normalization um, will be a gradual normalization for what we talked about earlier, because Yellen and team have the luxury of raising rates slowly because inflationary pressures are quite muted. Um, so we're becoming, I, I'm a firm believer that just maybe Janet Yellen and team are ahead of the curve here. They've timed it exactly correct. Um, they've proactively raised rates, proactively moved on this path of normalization, and are doing, and by doing so, they've already contained inflationary risk. Hence, they can continue to move gradually. Is, is, um, is that what you heard from her this week? Our Michael McKee, back from Cleveland, talked to us yesterday. He said there was a bit of misinterpretation of that speech, he thought, when it was initially given. And, and that indeed was what she was saying, that, that the Fed has been here uh, properly ahead of the curve. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, we always give... Uh, like central bankers have such a, a difficult job. Um, if they move too slowly, we criticize them for creating a bubble. If they move too quickly, 
we criticize them for uh, popping that bubble. Um, and Yellen, on the other hand, people are criticizing her for moving, um, some people believe, a bit too quickly. Um, but I think she's doing the right thing, and I think she's timed it perfectly. So we have to give credit um, to, to her and her team, um, in my opinion, for tightening um, at a moderate pace, but a pace just enough to curtail inflation, yet at the same time, not curtail growth um, and, and the fabric of the, uh, uh, the, the, the corporate and, and, and balance, balance sheet um, stability um, of, 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 of America. And uh, she just maybe has done that. How much are, or what, what effects are we seeing from, from the storms that uh, hit the U.S. over these last few months when it comes to, to inflation? Are they, are they having a notional, noticeable role here in, in inflation in the U.S.? I think they will. Uh, I think we're going to see a, a mini fiscal spending campaign um, to, to rebuild uh, the, the hurricane hit Florida and, and Texas regions. Um, and, and that should um, lead to some inflation, but it's, it's going to be transient. Um, I, I really believe today our signals are telling us there's many structural reasons why inflation has remained muted, uh, most notably technology. Um, technology has come, the digital era has come. Technology is allowing competition to come into industries that traditionally um, and currently operate as monopolies. Um, so as competition comes in, um, think Amazon. Amazon is bringing competition to the grocery store industry. Uh, what competition should do is twofold. It should bring prices down, and it should improve the quality of the product sold. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. That's not a bad form of, of, of disinflation. That's actually and good disinflation. Within your caution on bonds, price down, yield up. Can yep. you frame a bond bear market? I mean, is there a x-axis? Is there a length of time that causes Ashley Anchor to say, look, folks, a bond bear market's coming? Is that too inflammatory? Um, yes, I, I think there is a threshold there. I, I think that threshold is 10-year yields getting to 3%. Um, the reason I say that is a, a very simple rule of thumb that many people use, which makes economic sense, is looking at the differential between earnings yield, so the inverse P-E ratio for equities, and comparing that to the 10-year interest rate. Um, if the 10-year interest rate is higher than the earnings yield on equities, then all else equal, holding bonds is more attractive than holding equities. Mm -hmm. In the long run, that yield differential, so the difference between earnings yield on equities versus 10-year interest rates, is about 200 basis points. Um, today, the earnings yield on the S&P 500 is around uh, 5%, so a P.E. of around 20 um, which gives you one over 20, it gives you an earnings yield of 5%. The 10-year rate is at 230. If that 10-year rate gets to 3%, equities then are fairly priced relative to bonds. If your 10-year yield starts increasing above 3%, yeah. then your earnings yield has to increase, which means either prices have to fall or earnings really okay. have to grow. But then to circle back, and we'll let you go after this, to circle back, Ash, to what we yeah. originally talked about is the basic idea we do that smoothly and with yeah. controlled glide paths, 
or do we have the instabilities that so many either just outright fear or mathematically fear? I, I believe we do it gradually. Um, it, it's a smooth glide path. It's a, it's a smooth, smooth ride uh, uh, towards normalization. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that also, I believe, has to do not only with inflation pressures disappearing, but also the divergence in central bank policy. Um, what I mean by that... That the banks are if, each doing a different story. Yeah. Exactly. If all central banks were draining liquidity yeah. at the same time, yeah. that would be yeah. really bad. Yeah. Um, but central bankers, they're smart. So they, they, they say, let's drain liquidity, not in parallel. Mm-hmm. They'll just drain it sequentially. Um, and and that, that's good. Yeah. This, um, this has been great. Gura just ordered off Amazon uh, Newberger's options book on Greek, Sheldon Newberger's uh, options book on Greek letters. Out of stock, funnily. Enough. Yeah, Vega. Got to get, a, get a, a used copy. Yeah, Vega, 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 V-E-G-A. It's not Suzanne Vega. Uh-huh. Okay, it's you not can, a songwriter. You can get both. You can get it's the like uh, CD and the book together. Ashley Lanker, thank you so much for wisdom on mathematics. That's a real window into uh, the pro discussion. Yeah, absolutely. A little bit of, we try to do some jargon alerts there along the way. Okay, there. so 3% on the 10-year is the threshold for a bond bear market. Yeah, and okay. what he's talking about, there's a tip point. And um, if you have a glide path from 2 point, where are we right now, 2.32%, uh, and, you know, within all the day-to-day noise, if you glide up towards 3%, is the rate of change constant? And what he's suggesting is no. After 3%, you get into uh, different rates of change. And the real question, uh, David Gura, is, is the stability along the way. Got it. And mathematically, there's a lot of time spent on that. And I want to make clear, it's guessing what will happen. In there's, an educated no, way. Yeah, there's no certitude on this at all. High um, risk? It can be high risk. One of the great uh, regresses of high risk is leverage. Uh-huh. So if you're if you're not in leverage, you got a lot of cushion, but... You'd be shocked at how many people in the game actually use leverage because they're sure they're going to get it right, and that pops their uh, their return, whatever you know format they're in. So leverage can make uh, glide pass less glidey. That's a CFA word. There you Taylor, go. Taylor Riggs taught me that glidey. Oh God! Glidey this quiz is, after the show is going to be. There's tough. a quiz. I know. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.